Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Well, hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I am your host, Jonah Saller, as always. And before I get to my guest today, I do want to just remind you guys that if you want to join a community of like-minded Christians who are striving towards a deeper Catholicity, please click the link below and consider becoming a locals supporter. There you can support financially or you could just join for free and kind of pop your head and see what's going on in that world. But that is for anybody who's interested in becoming a mere Catholic. So click the link below if you're interested. Today, very, very excited to have back again for the second time on my podcast, uh, Eric Ibarra. Um, He is a author, Catholic apologist, um, and in my personal opinion, he's my favorite Catholic apologist. And Eric, I just want to say before we get into it, I so deeply appreciate not just your zeal to defend the Roman Catholic faith, but also the charity in which you do so and the the level of seriousness that you take. Those who might have some issues and have some pushback, um, there's not many that I see dealing with um, just the entirety of the Christian tradition with such charity and grace. So thank you very much for that. It's really an honor to have you on. Oh, thank you, Jonah. I appreciate that. I, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm I'm living up to that uh, perfectly any, in any by any regard, but um, I I do appreciate those kind words. That's very encouraging. Excellent. Well, before I let you introduce yourself, I do just want to pitch a couple of your books and talk about what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so the last podcast that I had you on for, we talked about your book, "The Just Shall Live by Faith." Resolving the Catholic-Protestant Debate on Justification from Paul's Epistle to the Romans. This is a very, very, very good book. The one we'll be talking about tonight is your book, Melchizedek and the Last Supper, um, Biblical and Patristic Evidence for the Sacrifice of the Mass. And the one that I have yet to read is your book on the papacy. I don't have a copy yet, but I hear it's excellent, so I would recommend uh, anybody who is interested in checking that out. So before we get into Melchizedek and the Last Supper. Could you just give a little bit more of a detailed introduction to who you are? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jonah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, for those listeners there who are not familiar with me, um, I, uh, I grew up in the uh, Catholic tradition. I was a young, young child. Um, I made my way into atheism in high school, and at university I had a radical conversion experience to Christ. And uh, I spent many years, um, starting from the Reformed Baptist tradition, uh, used to walk around with my London Baptist Confession of Faith with the Samuel Waldron's commentary. Um, and I went from being in those circles and uh, uh, hanging out with uh, Lutherans and Presbyterians, and um, I had a, a dramatic ecclesiastical experience that led me to uh basically asked the question of where church authority, where does the church have its origins, its beginnings, and its legitimacy. And that led me to down the Canterbury Trail to uh, Anglicanism. And um, so I, I ended up becoming um, a high church, Anglo, you call it, we call it Anglo-Catholic, um, part of the uh, APA, the Anglican Province of America. I attended uh, St. Albans um, 
St. Albans Anglican Cathedral in Oviedo, Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, I was there for a while, and, and it was such, such a beautiful and calm place to be. Um, but ultimately, through uh, prayer, contemplation, studying of the sources of revelation and the Christian tradition, uh, I found myself moved into the fork between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, I chose to return uh, back to Catholicism. It was really a conversion from my point of view. But, you know, when I came, they were telling me I was a revert. Um, and so, but I, I, you know, as a Catholic, I've, I've basically never, I've never kept my eyes off of the Anglo Anglican, uh, Orthodox and Catholic, um, trio, you know, the whole historical diatribe and, and the, the, the nexus of that debate, uh, with Reformation history uh, Catholicism, the East-West Greek-Latin schism, it's just been the focus of my attention for so long. Mm. Yeah, well, th- thank you very much once again for, for coming on, being willing to chat about your book. It was very, very good read, and I found myself agreeing with uh, a good majority of it, a good majority of it, and so I'm I'm excited to get into it, but maybe just, I want to start by just asking, like, what inspired the writing of this book in this subject in particular yeah that's a good question um so when i was an anglican you know people actually still send me links to my comments um back in 2011 2012 when i was a rather fiery anglican um a very skeptical of rome kind of anglican and uh they still send me these comments that I've left on like call to communion or other, you know, pro Catholic apologetics websites where I was just very critical about all the reading, what I thought was reading back into the sources of all the things Roman Catholic. And uh, one of the things that you know, stood out to me the most was John six, you know, the patristic reading of John six seems to be so more complex than is commonly, you know, made like on Catholic Answers websites or things like this. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. So when I became convinced of transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the Mass, as taught by the Council of Trent, uh, I found myself being more convinced by this Melchizedekian, uh, you know, the Melchizedekian typology and the Melchizedekian doctrine, really, um, from the literal sense uh, of the Book of Hebrews, which led to what I, you know, which led to the, you know, discourse on the book on the Last Supper, more so than John six and First Corinthians eleven and twelve, because I, 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 as a Protestant, I could find ways to incorporate John six. First Corinthians uh, eleven and twelve into my you know paradigm of my my system of theology, but I I couldn't find a way to do that with Melchizedek, and so I wanted to write a book, basically giving giving at least a you know somewhat of a basic summary of what I saw in this particular study. 
and why it was uh, more potent than the John 6, 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, typical argument that you hear from Catholic apologetics. Now, I, I do think those are powerful passages, but it just wasn't as convincing enough for me. It didn't clinch me, you know, mm -hmm. in other words. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write to, you know, open up and explain why it was that I thought that this was more significant than what you typically hear. Cool. Let's start with uh, just the Melchizedekian priesthood in general. Maybe the first question would just be, what is it? Then we can go to, what is it offering? And then what is the relationship of this priesthood to Christ? So start with, what is it? Yes. Yeah, well, um, Melchizedek is a name that has, uh, for some obscure reason, been the subject of so much literature. <laughs> in the early church mm -hmm. fathers um even before the even before the church era you had you know vast commentary like for example uh from the pen of the Essenes, as we can see from you know copies of man, of scripts in the qumran caves and mm -hmm. they 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 were very interested in this melchizedek figure because they knew that he would align or intersect with uh, the Messianic times. And in the early church, you had all kinds of speculation on uh, who Melchizedek was and what his purpose was. And uh, um, you have Syriac commentaries, you have Arabic commentaries, uh, just there was all kinds of speculation on who he is. Is he an angel? Was he an, a pre-incarnate Christ? Is he Shem? Um, which is a position some, you know, is popular today among scholars. <clears throat> I I don't really get into all those speculations. I kind of take the side of St. Cyril of Alexandria, where let's just stick to what the Bible says, <laughs> and let's just deal with what the Bible says. Um, whatever else is cool about Melchizedek, we'll leave to discussions afterwards, you know. And uh, But Melchizedek is a figure that shows up uh, mysteriously in Genesis chapter 14, and he's, he's you know, uh, he shows up as a priest. He says, it, it, the text says, Moses says, he's a priest of the Most High God, and that he blessed Abraham or Abram, and that uh, he brought forth bread and wine, right? And it also says that uh, Abr Abram received, his received Melchizedek's blessing and then gave Melchizedek a tithe. And um, nothing else is really said it's just a blessing upon the uh abram and his people after a victory in war uh from Gen from the beginning of genesis 14 and nothing else is really said about melchizedek but the term the name itself melchizedek um it, it comes from two two hebrew words um you've got milk melkite or milk comes from the hebrew understanding of uh kingship um, so almost all the English translations of, of the word um, uh, milk is king in Genesis, for example. So all the kings in Genesis, Exodus uh, and forward have that word. And then Zidek or Siddik is, uh, comes from the Hebrew for justice, righteousness, um, in, in, in that community of words. So basically the king of righteousness and he's said to be the king of Salem, which uh, 
you know, we all know is short. It, 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 later, Jerusalem uh, comes from that Salem word, which means peace, tranquility. Um, so uh, the name itself is, you know, he is the king of righteousness, king of peace, and he's a high priest of the Most High God. And uh, one of the psalmists, or uh, the prophet David, King David acting as prophet, um, in one of the Messianic Psalms, depending on what uh, uh, Psalm registry you're reading from 109 or 110, um, it, it, David says that the, the Messiah, the coming future Messiah, will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, um, which is, uh, so there's a foretelling of uh, a coming priesthood that would be never-ending, in a certain way, a certain priest, at rather, an individual who um, won't have a successor or a descendant priest. He himself will be a forever priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so um, some of the Jews beforehand, some of the prophets could have seen or deduced that um, there was going to be a priesthood coming, uh, that would be not after the according, uh, not after the order of Aaron, or according to the Levite, um, the the Levitical rule of the priesthood, but according to this Melchizedek figure from Genesis fourteen. Um, then in the New Testament, the only uh, treatment we get of this is in the Book of Hebrews, which I think it was written by Saint Paul. But I, I you know, gladly hear hear the opinions of others who want to speculate. Um, St. Paul in the book of Hebrews uh, shows that the logic of Genesis 14, or rather, he doesn't even go to what's said about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He goes to what's not said about him, that he doesn't have uh, an origin or an ending, uh, mm -hmm. together with the fact that the Messianic priest will be a forever priest, an eternal priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what that assumes um, basically, it means that the the law and the prophets themselves uh, put an ex uh, an implied expiration date on the priesthood of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which means that out of that is implied a change of the law, a change of uh, uh, of the covenant, change of the priesthood, um, pretty much everything. And uh, the idea is is that um, the or the Hebrews should not return to the old covenant because the Old Testament writings themselves uh, put an expiration to give way for this Melchizedekian priesthood in Jesus Christ. Um, so that's that's basically the testamental idea about right. Melchizedek. Yeah, very very good. In the book, you you kind of go into this idea that the offering of Melchizedek is this bread and wine. And you'll see a lot of Protestant commentators, as you noted, that will kind of push back on seeing a, a really strong parallel between this and Christ specifically and the Eucharist specifically. Um, yeah. And you also pointed out, too, that there is sometimes a tendency to basically see the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek as being a transubstantiation um, of Christ. But one of the things you pointed out that I think is interesting is, uh, and I'll quote here from page two, said, quote, while Melchizedek brings bread and wine as reflecting his own offering, Christ fulfills the type by also offering bread and wine 
but only after changing them to be his body and blood. The fulfillment of the type must be greater than the type, and so there cannot be an exact equality between Melchizedek and Christ, end quote. Do you want to just unkind of ravel that along with this idea of bread and wine being the thing that was actually offered? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just to be clear, you know, the the Old Testament um, and the New Testament taken together do not explicitly spell out that Melchizedek was offering bread and wine as his as the material of his priestly offering. And uh, that Christ's bread and wine at the Last Supper, for example, is somehow, you know, a, a, a strict fulfillment of that. We're we're deducing that um, working in the confines of Scripture. But, uh, yes, uh, I believe that in Genesis 14, uh, Melchizedek is presented in his priestly capacity. So anywhere a priest would receive priests, uh, tithes, rather, whether it's in the Levitical ritual um, or in the Christian ritual, you know, a reception of tithes is done in the capacity of the church or in capacity of the priesthood. And it's one of the arguments of the, the author to the Hebrews is that, well, tithes go to the, the to the tribe of Levi from the other tribes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, to give a tenth to the Levites is for the purpose of... Um, is is for the purpose of of sustaining them in the service of God because the Lord w- was their inheritance, right? Um, they were set aside for priestly service. Well, to give tithes to Abraham, or, I'm sorry, for Abram to give tithes to Melchizedek, it's very clear that the, the the capacity that Melchizedek is standing is in his high priestly capacity. And so, when it says he brought forth bread and wine. Um, I take that to mean that that was a food offering, a grain and wine offering, which you see, you know, in Exodus, Leviticus, um, you see instructions that God gives the Israelites for cereal offerings, grain offerings, and wine offerings. Uh, Melchizedek is offering that, uh, you know, and... Some of the fathers, it seems, especially like St. Cyprian, I would say, almost goes uh, to this point where Melchizedek offered uh, transubstantiated Christ, you know, uh, or, or bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. But I, I, take, I think it's safest to say that Melchizedek's offering was an unbloody uh, food offering. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and so... Christ coming in the order of Melchizedek. And the word order there, it doesn't mean like the order of the Dominicans. It really doesn't even mean like the Levitical order or something like that. It just, it actually has a more modest meaning. It's more like the style or the, like the pattern is really the better term. Okay. Um, so Christ comes in the pattern of Melchizedek. And so Christ's priesthood has to fulfill the pattern, you know, of Melchizedek. And I take that uh, to mean that when Christ fulfills the new covenant at the Last Supper and he takes bread and wine, uh, he fulfills the Melchizedekian pattern because he takes bread and wine as the material of his new covenant priestly offering. But because it's the fulfillment of the type, it's greater than just a food offering because he changes it into his own body and blood. 
There's another quote on uh, page 25 that I think is is helpful here. Um, or sorry, page 24. You write, quote, Is Melchizedek a priest? All Bible-believing Christians answer in the affirmative. Then you, you cite Genesis 14, 18. Is it the function of a priest to offer gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people of God? Likewise, all answer in the affirmative. Hebrews 8, 3. Therefore, Melchizedek must have an offering with which he exercised his priesthood. I thought this was a really good, just kind of very um, blunt way to show how we need to, in some sense, affirm a kind of offering associated with this, since he is called a priest. And then on page 25, you say, quote, the relationship between the prescriptive law for the Aaronic and Levitical offerings and the priests of the Old Covenant renders it obligatory that the same order of priesthood maintains the same order of sacrifices. Why then should there be such a massive disruption between the order of sacrifice between Melchizedek and Christ? Mm-hmm. Again, I think that's that's very, very good. So I think that, again, because there's not necessarily this explicit affirmation in in genesis that the bread and wine are the object of what is being offered there can be a difficulty for some to see that connection so yes i think it makes a lot of sense that okay we have one offering the second offering has to be like it but if you wouldn't just mind elaborating a bit more why you believe that there's a strong indication that this bread and wine were actually the thing being offered by Melchizedek. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, Melchizedek, uh, we know especially from the New Testament that Moses uh, is being inspired to bring about this figure, Melchizedek, um, because of its function as a uh, as a witness to the priesthood that would come in Christ, and so for Mel- so in other words, reading it with a Emmaus Road lens, um, where you know Christ opened their eyes to read the scriptures. Um, the way Jesus read the scriptures were it, everything was like a, the narrative was building a meta narrative all constructing this fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth right so from that lens the appearance of melchizedek in genesis has christian anticipations okay right and with that anticipation in mind um moses tells us that melchizedek who's the king of king of justice king of salem bringing forth bread and wine receives tithes he's to me it's it seems clear that he's acting in his role as a priest and his priesthood is not a bloody one it's not one where he's sacrificing animals in other instances an animal would be sacrificed in times of victory in war but in this particular priest, we don't see blood. We see food. And that is looking forward to the time when the, the bloody sacrifices of animals would, go, would come to an end. 
and when the people of God would be offering bread and wine. Um, we would be using food um, instead of uh, animals. And I see that testamental lens as giving weight to that bread and wine being what Melchizedek was offering. And of course it was given as it was given to consume, you know? So I, I do believe that Abram, Abram and his men uh, consumed the bread and wine. So it was a communal meal um, following a sacrifice of, you know, a grain offering and a, a you know, a offering of, of wine. Yeah. So the text, the text doesn't explicitly say it. It just says he brought forth bread and wine. Let, let's, you know, there's some people who've tried to say that the Hebrew makes it sound like he, because he was the high priest, he brought out bread and wine. I, I don't really see that. Um, we, we are really trying, we are reading through a Christian lens when we say yes. the bread and wine is the, is a sacrifice. Um, and you know, I, but I think that the, the, the apostolic deposit of faith, uh, renders it certain and not just probable because when you've got, you know, something that's above the literal sense of the text, you know, we're dealing in probabilities unless a new covenant, a new Testament author confirms, um, that meta textual meaning for example right. like a uh, adam or the the walking of the israelites through the red sea being an image of baptism um no, nothing in the exodus event says anything about baptism but we know that paul said look that's an image of baptism right we all partake of the same spiritual food and drink all pass through the the red sea and moses all drank from the rock, which is Christ, right? So clearly, uh, Paul is confirming the metatextual meaning of the Exodus event. I think the New Testament confirms the metatextual description of Melchizedek um, mm. in the bread and wine of the Last Supper. Yeah, very good, very good. I, I, I have to say, I think that your argument for that is probably the most compelling argument in the entire book, I was, I came in, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily skeptical, but, um, you reinforced for me the, the, really the necessity of reading that text that way. So I, I appreciate your, your argumentation there. Um, there, there are three things kind of when you, when you come to terms with this, there are three things that you go over, um, that are really essential to an apostolic understanding of the Eucharist. You say one is transubstantiation, second is the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the third is the propitiatory nature of the sacrifice. I want to start with the last one and kind of work our way backwards, because I think that the majority of Protestants are going to have a really hard time with both transubstantiation, but maybe even more so would be the propitiatory nature of the sacrifice. They're going to point to texts yeah. like Hebrews, you know, once for all, Eric, come on, once for all. <laughs> right. And um, it can get kind of dicey and a little bit confusing at times, but I, I actually think it's a little bit easier to solve than most people think. And so what do you mean by propitiatory nature of this Eucharistic sacrifice? And how does that not in any sense um, 
overrule the sufficiency of Christ's once for all sacrifice? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, and here here is a place that I think so much agreement could be had between Protestants and Catholics. Um, so here, I, I don't want to emphasize our disagreements because uh, there's so much to this that we could we could really get close on. Um, so first off, we don't want to say if one of the things that Protestants are thinking when they hear that, that that there's a sacrifice in the mass is propitiatory for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes Catholics don't realize that what Protestants are seeing is the logical argument of Hebrews being unraveled. I mean, the right. very the very argument of the book of Hebrews, uh, or one of the elements of the essential argument, is that the conscience was not fully cleansed and purified because new sins had to be dealt with by new sacrifices. <laughs> so right. so when when a catholic is just unbending in his reiteration of you know it's not another sacrifice but it's propitiatory for the figure it it just it's it's like a cyclical you know problem that doesn't ever get uh final resolution so what we want to emphasize here is that the the sacrifice of jesus happened once in other words it really happened one time uh Jesus died one time that his body was sacrificed and underwent the transition from life to death once okay so what's happening in the eucharistic sacrifice um is not another cycle from life to death for for the Lord Jesus <laughs> okay we want to make that absolutely clear um, but what we say is happening is that Christ went into the Holy of Holies, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says. It's because all all priests must have a gift. They must have gifts and sacrifices to offer to God. It is necessary that this one, too, had to have uh, a sacrifice. And that is his death on the cross once and for all. And then he enters into the Holy of Holies, which is, that's that happens 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. So part of the atoning work of Jesus, according to the author to the Hebrews, um, is still involves the ascension. Because mm. um, when he, he, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Well, the, the author to the Hebrews predicates from that session where he is seated, not like he physically sat down, but what it means is that his his priestly work reached its climax, right? Um, and that's still after the physical death, right? So Christ right now is literally in the Holy of Holies in this everlasting state of slain lamb, you know, he is among he is among other things the Lord of Lords, the King of Glory, all those things. He is also in the appearance of God the Father, the everlasting slain Lamb from before the foundation of the world. And yeah. so the session the session of that offering actually doesn't stop. 
And that the beauty of that love is rising to God the Father on behalf of the sins of the world. And so in the sacrifice of the Mass, what we do is we take food, bread and wine, we get it together on the table, and we ch the priest changes it into that, that status of slain victim by the symbol of body separated from blood. That's not what happens to Jesus in heaven. His body is in perfect condition right now. <laughs> but in this particular ritual, we have a symbol where body and blood are symbolized as being uh, separated, and it shows forth the state of victim. And we all we're doing is we're taking that heavenly session and bringing it to our particular altar. Mm. And what it does is it it just brings back the same benefits that we get from the cross that are originally accomplished, which is what uh, St. John says. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Well, that advocacy with the Father, that's that eternal session of the lamb slain. And we are freshly forgiven by the one sacrifice. Not another sacrifice like the Levites, but the same one. And so that's how it's propitiatory. Good, good. I, I just wanted to read a quote that uh, I found very helpful from your book on this particular uh, point on page 13. I think it's a very concise way to kind of break down uh, everything that you very eloquently just said right now. But you wrote on page 13, quote, It should be understood now that the sacrifice of the Eucharistic altar does not add, multiply, or repeat the physical human death of the Lord Jesus. Rather, a symbolic ritual that commemorates the Lord's death brings to the altar the very single same offering of the human sacrifice of Christ, but in a bloodless manner, that is, without a fresh death of a corporeal human. The oblation and offering of the crucifixion on Golgotha is brought to the altar without the repetition of the termination of life in the natural human body of Christ, which is forever glorified in the power and immortality at God's right hand. In this way, we can understand that Christ willed to perpetuate his sacrifice for the fresh obtaining of its benefits, such that it can be mystically represented under the appearance of bread and wine, end quote. thought that was very, very well stated. Um, and, and just to kind of follow up on that, I think that's very clear, and I think there can actually be quite a bit of agreement with Protestants if it's understood that way. And I, right? I mean, yeah, my I heart so really, really hopes that many Protestants who I think sometimes, sometimes I wonder if it is un intentional for some of these leaders who have been in the game for a long time. But I think for a lot of people, it's just an unfortunate repeating of these straw men that, that Roman Catholics teach that Christ is being offered over and over again on the altar. Um, the sacrifice never ends kind of thing. And I really think this does make a lot of sense. And in just kind of bringing this particular point to a close, why is it important that this sacrifice is in a real sense ongoing, especially as it relates to Melchizedek? Yeah, so this is a good question. And I, you know, I wish there was more treatment of it in like our systematic theology, because some people might be thinking, well, what about 60 million years into the eschaton? What is this heavenly session of the high priest going to have effectually? 
and we were all brought to a glorified perfection. What what's happening then? Well, um, it's obviously a testament. It's it's the everlasting testament, right? That's what at the end of the book of Hebrews, um, he calls it the uh, the eternal. I think he calls it the everlasting testament. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't think of what he says in Hebrews 13, but he calls it the 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 everlasting uh, the New Testament of the in in the uh, everlasting covenant. I think is what he calls it. I think so. Um, but yeah, so the reason why it's important that it's ongoing is because we are not in this world. We are not perfected. So uh, Paul talks about this in a number of places. Um, so Romans eight, for example. Um, we're still weak. So in our prayers, we need to have Christ interceding for us through the Holy Spirit. Um, so our current weakness requires that his heavenly session is ongoing because every, po every point of weakness that we have requires him to shadow over us with his grace. That's why the author to the Hebrews doesn't just talk about the 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 human death of Jesus. It also talks about the human development of Jesus, where he at all times was faced with the difficulties of life, like we were. So that way, when we face our difficulties, the anxieties of life, the temptations against sin, even though you know we won't get into the theology of how Christ was really tempted. Um, but the facing the devil and overcoming this, you know, uh, transitory life as the beautiful Anglican liturgy says, um, we still need to have his, our elder brother, his help, um, mm -hmm. because he, he understands and can empathize with us. And so he, he has to be in that status where he's there to quench all the guilt of our sins away as he is helping us in our time of need. That's what the author of Hebrews says. We have an altar that we can rush to uh, yes. under the mercy of God anytime we need it. Amen. Mm. Amen. <laughs> um, so that's why it's ongoing. And it's also ongoing because that sacrifice is in the, in the eyes of God. It's everlasting. The efficacy is everlasting, and so in order in order for it to be have an effic uh, an everlasting efficaciousness, um, it has to be ascending in some sense to to you know to God in uh, in a historical way. Um, that's how he was able to uh, forgive Noah, forgive Abram, forgive Abraham and David when he sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, Romans 3 tells us that in times of the past, God overlooked the sins of the past, but now he is demonstrating his justice, right, so that he can be just and justifier, right? But he had been justifier of people all the way back to Adam and Eve. He'd been justifying Abel, Enoch, uh, Noah, all the patriarchs and prophets, right? Um but because of that everlasting efficaciousness of Christ sacrificed, he now we know what it was that is is propitiating the sins of man. Mm. So it has to be an all 
transcendent offering that is ongoing uh, for us until until the end when he offers the kingdom of God to the Father. Um, now, what does the ongoing high priestly ministry of Christ going to do when we're all perfected in glory? At that point, I, I think it's just it's just going to remain as a testament uh, of thanksgiving, looking back upon the history and the drama of redemption. You know, mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll always know what it was that brought us to this consummation. Um, yeah. So it'll it'll you know. So, but I do I, I don't want to say that there's like that's an end to this. I wish we get some of the geniuses out there who are trained in theology to touch more upon that subject because I'd be interested in seeing how more we could tease out from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I think as a, as an Anglo Catholic myself, there are certain, there are certain practices within the Roman Catholic communion that I've sometimes kind of raised an eyebrow to such as like private masses or things like that, Yeah, where mm-hmm. a view like you're proposing starts to draw out, why that actually might be a a valid way in which the Eucharist is is used, as opposed to I think, um, you know, within a, a lot of Protestantism, there tends to be a very uh, communal and meal kind of focus to the way the Eucharist is talked about, to kind of the exclusion of the sacrificial nature. And if you exclude that sacrificial nature, the the purpose and the role of the Eucharist in the Church does have a very narrow and specific context. So I, I could yeah. see why thinking about this uh, a little bit more deeply could could help with that. Speaking of uh, Anglicanism, first of all, I appreciated in the book you very uh, uh, you made a slight distinction between Anglicanism and then Anglo-Catholicism, which I appreciated because I do think there are some differences there, and I think that Anglo-Catholicism in particular would largely be in agreement with with the three yeah. points you made. Um, yeah. Whereas Anglicanism, uh, especially its more reformational side, tends to be, uh, you know, more aligned with with, say, a Presbyterian or, or, or something like that, the Reformed camp. Um, one thing I would love for you to just kind of talk about briefly um, is a lot of times you'll hear within this more Reformed side of Anglicanism that, you know, the Eucharist is a sacrifice, but it's it's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It's a sacrifice of our bodies being offered to the Lord and, you know, even a sacrifice of bread and wine. Um, but there is a tendency to move away from any sort of propitiatory discussion here. Um, you've kind of touched on this already, but in that particular context, why would a Roman Catholic say that that's an insufficient view of the sacrificial nature of, of this particular moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for my Anglican brothers and sisters um, who are trying to do their best. You know, they don't want to stick out their neck for what really sometimes does appear to be uh, a Roman exaggeration of something. And right. so I, I want to respect the sensibilities of people who are trying to be faithful to God, right? Um, but I would say that this this disagreement it it goes back to a disagreement or perhaps it goes back to a misapplication of the doctrine of the mystical body of Christ. What we teach in the Catholic Church, and this is really 
taught by like when I was an Anglo Catholic, I thought the Anglo Catholic authors talked about this better than than mm-hmm. even Roman Catholic uh, 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 theologians. Is that in the mystical union of head and members, there is a sense in which what he does, we are receiving the benefits of, but also what we do is somehow brought into what Christ does. So uh, St. Augustine talks about this, how he says, look on the altar, right? In one, in one text, he says, don't be fooled, it's, the, it's the body and blood of Christ, right? In another text, he says, look at the altar. What you're looking at is you. <laughs> right yeah and 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 um you know this some of my catholic listeners are probably like oh my goodness let me get denzinger let me get <laughs> yes augustine says look at the altar what you see is you because of his doctrine of the singularity of the mystical person that is the christian body and so the sacrifice of your prayers your suffering your uh, anxieties that you offer up, your prayers, your alms, all those things that you do in that liturgical setting of the Eucharist, that is the body of Christ being offered up with Christ to the Father. Because of that union of head and members, there's a, a compenetration between Christ and us. This is one of the reasons why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that he fills up in his body um, the sufferings of Christ from what is lacking. He doesn't mean that what Christ did is somehow um, needs more work to fulfill redemption. All he means is that the suffering of all the body members of Jesus, that is also the suffering of Christ. And because in this suffering world, that lack will exist until the resurrection. We all suffer to fill up in our bodies what is lacking in the suffering of the mystical body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So amen to my Anglican Presbyterian brothers who want to say that the offering is a sacrifice of praise, all that stuff. But that is in, if you incorporate that into the doctrine of the mystical body, the, that there is no distinction really between the bone, the sinew, the flesh and blood of Jesus, and our personal uh, participation in the offering mm. of that body and blood of Christ, because of that union, you see. Um, when Paul brings this up in Ephesians 5, he just says, it's a mystery, okay? Somehow, you are part of his bone, sinew, and everything. I mean, his flesh. We are we are mystically his body, you know, and so yes, you know. But uh, it, it, the reason why it, it comes short though is because they want to take the the body members of the sacrifice of the altar and separate it from the offering of Jesus, and that's where the problem goes. But if you you can bring that together with the doctrine of the mystical body. Of the union mm. of head and members, um, and I think that they should have no problem with that. Um, and, and so, when, when, when we commemorate the body and blood of Christ on the altar, um, we are joining with Christ in that heavenly upward session of sacrifice to the Father. Um, and that's why you know 
in the even in the Roman liturgy, we say uh, that, that the sacrifice of mine and yours, you know, it's it, we are coming to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and early early t- early statements in liturgical context will speak about the, your offering, your oblation, right? Even says you bring your own wine and bread as your offering. Sometimes, like in the the uh, apostolic tradition of Saint Hippolytus, um, so. It almost doesn't sound Roman Catholic-y, you know. Um, but if you incorporate that doctrine of the mystical body, you can see from uh, third, fourth, fifth century authors that they are actually talking about um, a real, a real, uh, you know, the real propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus coming to be represented, and then we join ourselves with it in that upward session in praise to to God. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. Very, very well stated. Thank, thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. The, the, the remainder of our time, I wanted to focus on probably my one disagreement with the book. Um, and that, that would be the, the necessity of transubstantiation. Um, I, I, think, I think you make a good case for why it could be a, a very important part of the faith, but I'm, I'm not convinced that some of the articulations, especially that with with more of the Anglo-Catholic side of things, um, the kind of alternative that you'll sometimes see to transubstantiation, I'm not sure I'm seeing a precise connection. One of the things you say is that, um, this is on page two again, um, quote, to avoid two offerings of Christ's priesthood, the offering of the Melchizedekian bread and wine must merge with his body and blood, by way of typological fulfillment, fulfillment, such that bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ become one and the same thing. Now, I'll, I'll give my critique, and, and, and you can respond. The reason yeah. I, I wouldn't say that transubstantiation is necessary is the way I view it, at least, and I would hold to probably more of a sacramental union kind of view, um, that the body and blood are joined with the bread and the wine. And the reason I think this works, even with this idea of it has to be one sacrifice rather than two distinct sacrifices, is really just an appeal to the incarnation. You have the Godhead and you have the manhood that are joined together in one person, never to be divided, lest we fall into some kind of heresy. And so it's not a matter of Christ being two. Christ is one, but he's both fully God, fully man, or truly God, truly man. And so taking the same kind of pattern with the bread and wine, if the bread and the wine are joined to the body and blood in such a way that there's a union where they are both there but inseparable, then I I think we can talk about it as being one thing without having to move into a transubstantiation that would insist upon the substance having been changed into the body and blood of Christ while the accidents of bread and wine still remaining. Um, So I'd be curious to get your response as to why that might not work still. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, over time, I've learned to be more gentle in critiquing uh, your view, what you just said. I had a dialogue with an Anglican, uh, Father James Gad. He's the yep. barely Protestant. Barely Protestant. One. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, and we had talked about this um, at the time. This was kind of like the central focus of our discussion. And uh, so I, I've learned to be a little bit more gentle with it because at first it, it what it seemed to me was that you the incarnation analogy um, has to give more utility to the bread and wine than just being there, right? And I would say that the bread and wine have to become the body and blood of Christ. This is in my own thinking. Because in order to take the Melchizedekian action and the Christian action and put them together in such a way that there is one offering, you really need to have that bread and wine in its substance to be Christ. And here's why. Melchizedek had an offering. It was bread and wine. That was his, it, to me, that it seems clear from, especially when we take the patristic uh, commentaries. If we're at that point where we could all agree that that was the offering of Melchizedek, then then we can go into a new room. We could exit that room, go into a new room. And that new room is that uh, Melchizedek, that was his offering. Now, Christ, his offering is not bread and wine. In other words, um, his offering really is just himself, you know. And in, when you put bread and wine together with the body and blood of Christ in their substances, you're adding more to that new covenant sacrifice. Because if you just take the incarnation, right? You have the, the you have the nature of God and the nature of man, right? And in the offering of Christ on the cross, his sacred humanity is, is brought is sacrificed, right? It, it's it's what's killed, but his person, right, unites the flesh, uh, the the human nature and the divine nature. In other words, the operation of Jesus was singular in the sense of his person. Obviously, there's the duality according to nature, but singularity in according to person. I don't know if you can bring that into the sacrifice of bread, though, because if that's the case, then the bread has to have a participation, just like the human humanity had a participation in the cross, do you see? And so when you add bread nature, wine nature, in a hypostatic union with the divine word made flesh, now you've got divine nature, human nature, wine nature, bread nature, all acting in a single operation without any kind of utility to the bread and wine. Unless we really want to give that utility just the fact that it's food for us to see, touch, taste, and eat. But then it's devoid of its sacrificial character. Now it's just there to serve as a, a medium for food. But that's not what it was for Melchizedek, do you see? And so you end up taking the Melchizedekian activity away from the Christian activity if the bread and wine function is not in the offering, but simply in the consumption. 
So Melchizedek's offering has to be a real offering where God receives it for as a gift on behalf of the people, right? In the in the Lord's Supper, if bread and wine only have the function of being a meal, you know, um, you know, in that hypostatic union where bread nature and Christ's natures put come together, what then is the bread doing? Is it going up in the offering to the Father with Christ in some sense? If so, then in what way? Do you see? In what in what way is the, my question? Um, and if not, if you know, because I've I've talked to some folks, they say, well, no, no, Christ isn't offering bread and wine like you know, like the way that God commanded the Levites to do. Um, but there's a union there, and so the person being offered is, you know, that's what matters is the person. But in the real death of Jesus, it's not just the person that mattered. His sacred humanity was a hundred percent involved, and so is bread and wine a hundred percent involved as well? Mm. And if it's not, what is it doing? And somebody say, "Well, it's there so we could eat it and drink it." Well, now you're turning it into just a, a the the consumption part, which takes away the sacrificial character of the bread and wine. Now, in my opinion, sure. Yeah, I, th- that's interesting. I'll have to I'll have to give that some more thought for sure. I get I guess my thinking in regards to the utility of the bread and wine is I've always thought of them as in a in a sense representing the natural being joined to the supernatural or participating in the supernatural such that we can get a sense of the pattern of our own lives in participation in Christ. And I, I mentioned this to you in a Facebook comment a little while back and it's it's the idea that in Christ, the more conformed into his image that I become, the more myself I actually am. Less of, it's not more of Christ means less of me. It's actually more of Christ means more of me. I become more fully human, more fully mm. what I was designed to be. Um, and so that's kind of the utility I see in the bread and wine is the bread and wine are included in the offering because they are becoming more of what they are as a almost a type in some sense i guess you could say of what we ourselves are becoming through this participation in in this in this supper and i think it was augustine who talked about or maybe it was aquinas i think it might have been aquinas who talked about how like the eucharist makes the church and i would say like in a sense part of the making of the church is the fact that the bread and wine are participating in something that is a symbol to us of the very thing that we are becoming in Christ, more of who we are rather than less of. And and I, th- I think one of my problems with transubstantiation uh, is that it seems to indicate that the bread and wine have to become something other than what they are in substance in order for Christ to be fully present. My argument is, if that's the case there, then if Christ is fully present in me, if I become fully conformed to the image of Christ, do I have to then lose my natural substance with only the accidents of Jonah remaining? Um, right. So I'd be curious to, to have <laughs> yeah. a response to that. Yeah, I certainly don't think that argument would work. The Catholic argument that says that uh, in order for Christ to be truly present, 
um, the bread nature and wine nature have to be uh, obliterated substantially or, um, you know, trans, it has to completely change to something else. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that particular argument would be convincing. Um, so that's why I would take the Melchizedekian route, which is a different one than the presence argument. Um, you know, so yeah, I think if you, if you were to bring that argument to a Catholic who was arguing that, uh, I think you'd get the better of it. Sure. Sure. So your, your argument would, would basically be that that particular approach is not even within the realm of the argumentation that you're using at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I think the presence of bread and the presence of Christ can be conjoined. I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing metaphysical that would, you know, say that that's not possible. You okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I, so you know, that's why I would say that the, that's why I would say that the, the function of the bread and wine has to retain a priestly action. And, okay. and so, you know, it, it, a priestly action, meaning it has to be offered. It has to be offered to God. And if what's being offered to God is bread nature, right, and wine nature, then that means bread and wine are involved in the propitiation of our sins. Mm. Um, ju just, just like in the hypostatic union of Christ between God and humanity, the humanity was part of the priestly propitiation for our sins. In other words, the, the mercy seat, the, the helasterion of the cross, that's not just a personality thing. Oh, the person of the second member was there, so we could add all kinds of natures, but that doesn't matter. No, the, the human nature of Christ is the press, it's the very precipice of his being the propitiation for our sins because um, he shared in the same flesh and blood as all of all his brothers, like uh, the Hebrews chapter two and three talk about. Um, so the human nature of Jesus on the cross, that retains a priestly offering. So if we're going to say that in the Eucharist, bread and wine end up getting put together with Christ in a hypostatic union where you've got the single person with his two natures, God and man, and then we add the bread and wine nature, and all of that goes up to God the Father as a sacrifice, um, now we're, we're, we're going to have to develop a theology I think, at least as far as I can see, of how bread and wine is involved in the New Covenant offering. Now, if we take the substance of bread and wine away and say the bread is actually just the body of Christ and the wine is just the blood of Christ, now we retain that singularity of just the two natures with the one person on the cross. Okay. I, I think that makes sense. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one more question because I I can be a little tense sometimes, and I just want to make sure I have my head around. No this. worries, and and I'll I'll definitely think about what you said. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I've but learned I, to I, be a, a much much more gentle with with the uh, the views of you know that, uh, about the retaining of nature because some of the fathers are just very clear about the re retaining of of bread. Right. 
Yeah, and that that would probably be one of my primary arguments is it seems to me that I I see it in in the fathers and even, you know, in St. Paul where he seems to speak of the bread and wine as bread and wine still. Um there there's just questions there I have. So so the the, the one question that I that I have still that maybe you can help explain is it sounds to me like you're saying if the bread and wine are included in the offering we have to somehow account for the fact that the bread and wine are in some sense involved in this propitiatory sacrifice. Well, at the same time in your book, you, you say on page 20 that if it were the case that bread and wine make up the sacrifice of the Melchizedekian priesthood, then that means all priests resembling him must offer bread and wine to God as part of the requisite object sacrifice. Following this line of reasoning, Christ as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, would entail that his offering must consist of bread and wine. And you go on from there, and I think I understand your argumentation, but I, I just want to make sense, make sure I'm getting my head around this. If the, yeah. if the bread and the wine are transubstantiated to be just body and blood, then in what sense is bread and wine, continuing in this line of Melchizedek, actually part okay. of this offering? Yeah, yeah. That, that was one of those arguments that I... I had anticipated when writing this, you know, they say, well, Eric, if if we're talking about the complete change of bread and wine substantially into the body and blood of Christ, then that would seem that that's the finish line for Melchizedek. He's he's basically cut off <laughs> like right. a shuttle separates right. in space. You know, it, it's, right. he's done with. Which is um, why for me, the, the sacramental union idea makes sense with in light of that. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's that would be one of those attractive elements to that view is like a Melchizedek has a a, a more comfortable inviting home in the in right. the imagery with that. Um, so I, I would say that the bread and wine are still there in the sense that number one, uh, the type and the fulfillment have to be different, right? So it can't be that the bread and wine of Melchizedek and the bread and wine of Christ are absolutely equal. Because that would just mean type and type are equate or type and and fulfillment are are equated, right? And that doesn't make any sense. All of the types in the Old Testament, um, you know, Adam, uh the crossing of the Red Sea, uh the the conquest of Canaan, uh, the temple, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, we all we all know those things are inferior to the fulfillment. So the bread and wine of Melchizedek and the bread and wine of the Christian priesthood, uh, they have to have some reflection, but some inequality. And so I would say that the reflection, that equation, has to be in the bread and wine, but in so far as we perceive it, so uh, the way it tastes, the way it feels, the way it looks, um, the way it smells—you know—all those things, um, all the species of what bread and wine would look like—that's retained. And so, in a sense, bread and wine is retained in those appearances, species and appearances right so our perception of it is what creates that connection to melchizedek 
what makes them differ is the distinction between type and fulfillment, namely that the substance of it becomes Christ, while everything else retains what normal bread and wine would look like, taste like, smell like, and, and, and uh, what it does when it comes into the body, when we digest it. The stomach acid breaks it apart. I mean, all that's the same with regular bread and wine. But there is that the difference in the transubstantiation element, you know. So that's what I would answer from from the transubstantiation point of view. Okay. So, yeah. So so a big part of, if I'm understanding you correctly, a big part of the importance of transubstantiation would be largely because we want to, we want to ensure that the only thing that's being pleaded before the Father is the Christ. sacrifice of Christ and not somehow yeah. this bread and wine that we don't really know what to do with in this equation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be my line of reasoning, you know, but again, I'm not infallible and uh it, sure. it seems as though it seems as though this argument has a basis in history and Catholic theology, but you know, m my book um it it doesn't have it, it, you know, I have some magisterial uh ground. I cited some magisterial statements in the right. beginning. Um, but the final conclusion, it doesn't, the magisterium hasn't given any explicit articulation for it, you know. Sure, sure. Well, very good, Eric. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go here and we'll, we'll pause the conversation, but I, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. This is a important subject and it really does. I mean, I agree with the Roman Catholic Church. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian faith. And so it's, it's very important that we, we understand this rightly and, um, my hope is that uh, we can encourage people to continue to have discussion around this subject and we can come to a greater unity around it. Um, and you've definitely given Amen. me a lot of food for thought and I, I really appreciate your, your time. And uh, yeah, as we go, is there anything you'd like to say? Any places people can find you if they want to continue to follow your work? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I have... Two places you can go, ericibarra.org or ericibarra.com. Uh, ericibarra.com is, is where you're going to get links to all of my published works. Um, and then also I have a Patreon. Uh, it's called Classical Christian Thought. Um, there's uh, three tiers of, in, of, of membership. Uh, and I offer a number of courses, one of them on justification by faith. Uh, I'm going through Magna Melchizedek book uh, right now in in the uh, Patreon, uh, but I also offer miscellaneous uh, courses, uh, exclusive articles, and so you know if you're interested, you know uh, check the, check out the Patreon. There's also a lot of public material, so this my Patreon's kind of like a blog too. So there's a lot of free reading for people. Um, and then Facebook is probably the best place to like reach me. Um, and uh, yeah, that kind of covers the, the, the horizon. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, I'll try to remember to, to get some links down to some of those places below. And Eric, thanks again for your time. Thank and you. it was a joy. God bless you.